Well, good morning. Man, it really does feel like coming home. Uh, we've had the, the joy of uh, being a part of the church plant uh, nine years ago, and it's just so exciting to be here again. It really does feel like coming home. You know, about 21 years ago, somebody met with me every Tuesday uh, afternoon, and uh, they had such, such a desire. They weren't a believer, but they really wanted to know the truth of God's Word. And so they would meet every Tuesday afternoon, and I, and I, I was a bit of a cynic and, a, and had a critical spirit. So I thought, well, you know, I have a lot of people meet with me as a pastor, and I, I was at Bethel Baptist there, which is now Emmanuel Baptist there across the road from Cornerstone. And they would meet, though, faithfully. I'd give them a book to read. There's no way they're going to come back. And they came back. And I gave them another book to read. Ah, oh, this. No way. And then they would ask me question after question after question. Um, I left that church and um, did not have the honor of uh, uh, leading that person to Christ, but they did come to Christ. That's Brother Keith Giffen. And to see him now, do you remember that, brother? <laughs> and he would ask so many questions. I'd go home and I'd have to study because some of the questions he asked, I'll be honest with you, I had no idea how to answer them. Um, but then to see what God does. And you realize, I had a client the other day say, I am so inadequate. I said, well, that's because you are, and so am I. I am inadequate in and of myself. But in Christ, we, we are not inadequate. And you're going to realize it's not what we do. You know, just coming from South Africa as well, uh, we had several times where we actually could have been literally killed um, recently. And, and, and yeah, I bought two non-lethal firearms because of the, there was two murders next door to us and there was a threat of attack. But it's amazing how, um, I think Ellie enjoyed it because she was holding the magazines while I was trying to show her how, what we're to do if we're attacked. So she really enjoyed that part. Um, but it was interesting, you know, if you die, you die. It's not if we die, it's got to be a good day to die. Every day my wife and I get up and we say to one another, is this a good day to die? Therefore it needs to be a great day to live for the Lord. You know, this is the sixth time now Renee and I have started from scratch. I have no house, no pension, no retirement. No savings, but no problems. Because we're literally living in the sphere of who God is. We came naked into this world. We will leave naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a whiner. I whine a little bit every now and again. But, you know, at 56 now, the Lord has definitely broken me and helped me to realize that I need to stop whining. And I need to stop focusing. So this year, my goal is to have joy, meekness, and patience. That's my goal. To be broken and constantly broken before the Lord. And the key is not only to lead the next generation of African rural servant leaders into knowing Christ and to sharing with their generation, it's also to lead the next generation of Canadian servant leaders. And that's why I think God kept us in South Africa. Uh, in, in, sorry, in, in, in Canada. This is Canada, right? So uh, that's key. And I have some, what I've realized is some wonderful godly men and women who want us to change. And you know what? You may be right here, and you may be saying, oh man, why did I come this morning? You know, well, you needed to be here. And it's not about Craig Brennan. I'm a recovering hypocrite, man. <laughs> I struggle with what I teach, but it's his word, and God will change you. Somebody asked me recently, Craig, how many people have you saved? I went, let me think for a second. Uh, no one. I've never saved a single person. God does the saving. But we need to be faithful to his word. So let's turn in his word right now to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. The book of Ephesians. And, and as we're going there, today we're going to talk about whose 
and who we are. Whose and who we are. We live in a culture um, of individualism. In fact, recently, it's been told that we actually live in a culture of hyper-individualism. And we'll talk about that just in a moment. So whether you are religious or not this morning, the relevancy of the Bible, the book of Genesis and the Bible, is quite amazing. So much so, a guy by the name of Leon Cass, K-A-S, K-A-A-S, Leon Cass. He was an uh, American philosopher, but also a scientist. And for about 20 years, he was a Jewish gentleman, he studied the book of Genesis. And what he did with the book of Genesis, he realized something, and he said this, the best place to start, now he was not a believer, but he said the best place to start is at the beginning with the first book of the Bible. And though he didn't believe in the historicity of Adam and Eve, what he did say um, is that Adam and Eve are not just the first, but this is the, the, here's a big word like wheelbarrow, paradigmatic. Basically, he says Adam and Eve are a pattern. A paradigm is a pattern. They are a pattern. They're the first paradigmatic man and woman. Listen to this quote. By means of such paradigmatic stories, the book of Genesis shows us not so much what happens, but what always happens. By holding up a mirror in which we readers can discover in ourselves the reasons why human life is so bittersweet, why uninstructed human beings generally get it wrong. Genesis reflectively reads also provides a powerful and pedagogical beginning for the moral and spiritual educator, uh, education of the reader. So what always happens? Well, what we find in the book of Genesis and also throughout the Bible is there's a seeking of an individualistic identity. And so individualistic identity basically is an impression management. It's where I must reflect me. I live for me. I'm not a part of a community. And my self-expression, who I am, is more important than anything else. So much so, people say, well, that's a modern, that's a modern thought. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 4 says this, Solomon lamented, Then I saw all the toil and all the skill in the work comes from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is a vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon is saying the reason we live is we covet, we compare, and we crave, and we consume, and I need to keep up with the Joneses. True or false? That's a fact. Impression man. We wouldn't have Instagram. Are you kidding me? We wouldn't have Instagram. My, my best, I want you to see my best, who I am. Well, who we are is who we are in secret. And yet, is this just simply a, a, a frothy uh, biblical thought? Well, no. Actually, recent research has said that individualistic identity has a price. Researchers, psychologists, and mental health experts see, listen to this, the individualistic identity as cutting people off, living a presenting self, leaving to a staged life of isolation over time. And because it cuts off community, it leads to depression, a greater, it creates a lesser sense of belonging, and even suicide. That's not me making this up. Because we've moved away from God's truth about uh, being a part of community, 
and what it means to be part of a local assembly where we, we appreciate the di- distinction and the diversity, and we come together in unity because we focus vertically. We, we live isolated lives. We're designed to belong. You are designed to belong. I am designed to belong. Belong to one another. No one matures in isolation. Listen to me on that. No one matures in isolation. But this culture breeds that. You say, well, that means in the world. No, even in the church. And you've got to make sure as a local church, you realize that you are distinct and different, different gifts, different callings, and you come together as one body. Amen? And that's key. Even in your marriage, here's the problem. Most people, if they're isolated, can even make their spouse their idol. Renee and I did. On the 3rd of February, 2008, we realized we had made one another our idol. And we would prayed, Lord, open up our hearts and minds to one another. And Lord, if you were to choose to take either of us, Lord, may you be given the glory. And we realized we had cut ourselves off from community. We prayed that on the 3rd of February, 2008, at about 8 o'clock. On the 3rd of February, at 4 o'clock, we were at the golf course near the old Y. It was the last run. Alex and uh, Stephen had wanted to go, so we, we were gone. Remember how they got the slide there where everybody goes down the tubes? Renee went on the tube with Alex, went down, took a right, hit a pole, and broke 28 bones. And she almost died. You know, that was a great aha moment. I remember her hitting the pole, and I looked up to God and I said, let's do this. We've got to be about community. And first thing she said in the hospital when we, told, we found out that she was going to die was, it's a good day to die. First thing she said to me, because it's a good day to live. And obviously the Lord repaired her, unless, woo, that's someone else. Um, and there she is. But God, that's what God does. He breaks us. He breaks us because we can live very much for ourselves. And so this morning, we're going to look at Ephesians 1. And we're going to look at Ephesians 1, and we're going to see how Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesians, he was writing to a culture, and though it was a circular letter, he was actually writing to a culture who was very self-sufficient. They didn't need anybody. They were individualistic people. And so he was writing Ephesians 1 to 2, uh, one to three saying, here's what your identity in God b- looks like in Christ. And then four to six, he was saying, here's what it looks like to belong together and have an interdependent identity. So first of all, an interdependent identity with him, one to three, four to six, an interdependent identity with one another. We're just going to look at chapter one and go through a few verses this morning as way of an introduction. So let's look at Ephesians one, verse three to 14. Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His and for the fullness of time to uh, unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance which has being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we 
who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, we were, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So this morning we're going to ask two questions, two basic questions. What would Paul have us understand about our individual but independent identity with him? And then secondly, why does that matter? You know, how do we receive? How do we receive that independent identity? The first is, how do we understand this interdependent identity with him? And then, how do we, um, how do we receive that interdependent identity? So let's first look at how, uh, what does Paul want us to understand about that interdependent identity? Well, the first thing is there is in verse 3, we are blessed by our blessed Father. We are blessed by our blessed Father. Now, when you hear that word this morning, that might not be good, Father. You know, um, many people that I work with, including myself, did not have um, great relationships with their fathers. So it's not always a, a good term. But that's why that's horizontal. We're talking about vertical in that God wants to be our Heavenly Father. Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word blessed simply means uh, to speak well of. That's all the word. We get the word uh, um, to uh, eulogy from that word. It means to speak well of someone. And blessing is not only to speak well, but to think well of them. And blessing starts vertical from God to us and then horizontally. However, look what Paul's saying. He's not saying God is blessing us. Notice what he says. Blessed be the God. So he's going positionally, I need to focus on God because he demands my attention. Blessed be God. It's a vertical focus. A guy by the name of A.W. Tozer, he said this, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, it's whose we are that we focus on Him. Max Turner said about this verse, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is best understood as a stately prayer, a call to worship designed to lift the reader's eyes off themselves, from themselves, from their fears, to the majesty and love of God revealed in his unfolding plan and to the privilege of participating in us. Harold Hooner said the best, the concept of blessing with reference to God is not expressing a wish, blessed be God, but rather, blessed is God. So you've got to start there. And it's interesting, when people are about to die, when people are struggling, you know, coming from South Africa, there were several people I was working with who were about to die, it's amazing to look at them, and they're not thinking about what they own. They're not thinking about what they have. They're thinking about whose they are, whose they are, because they look to God. Everybody is born, and everybody will die. And when on your deathbed or before that, if you get sick, I promise you this, you will look to God. Anybody here been close to death? Like you've been on your deathbed, but you lived? Okay. When that happens, trust me, you will want to know God more than anything else. And that vertical focus, blessed be God, is key. Now, what about if we suffer? Well, Paul the Apostle keeps a vertical focus. In fact, in Ephesians 3, 
If you want to turn there, Ephesians 3.13, Ephesians, just flip there, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. And the word for suffering means to be squeezed, confined, under immense pressure, to be distressed and oppressed. But instead of living in a dungeon of despair and wallowing in a prison of pessimism, Paul focuses on who he is, whose he was, and who he is in Christ. Not just what happened to him. And there was a purpose to his pain. Paul's focus was vertical, worshiping God in in spite of that intense pressure, horizontally. Our identity is authenticated in who we are, in whose we are. Our meaning and identity is in whose we are when we know we're in God through Jesus Christ. And so you have to suffer to prove that. There are many people that disagree with me on this, but it's not... You can disagree with me, but it's in the Word. It's not if you suffer, you're going to suffer. We will suffer. And it's whose we are. That's the focus. Because at the end of the day, you know, I'm a counselor, and so I work with people all the time uh, who are struggling and suffering, and they know when they come and see me that I have a faith in God. Now, I don't have to manipulate them or hit them on the head with the Bible at all, but they know right from the beginning I'm going to mention God because I believe God is a solution. He is the solution for their lives. And it's amazing how this, this week I had the honor of leading, uh, sharing Christ with nine clients. Each of them was struggling with depression and locked into uh, because of abuses that happened to them. And they, all, their, all their horizontal relationships had failed them. And they wanted someone who would never leave them nor forsake them. Isn't that interesting? We need that. And so what we see here, there are five or six Uh, identities, independent identities that you and I can have. The first is what Paul wants to tell us, we're in Christ. We're in Christ. You'll notice the word in Christ comes up 12 times in verse 3 to 14. We're in Christ. It's an expression that talks about the sphere of safety. John Stott says the commonest description in the scriptures of a follower of Christ is that he or she is a person in Christ. The expressions in Christ, in the Lord, in Him, occurs 164 times in the letters of Paul alone and are indispensable to understanding of the New Testament. To be in Christ does not mean to be inside Christ as a tool is in a, in a box or clothes or in a closet, but organically united to Christ as a limb is to the body or a branch is to the tree. Relationship with Christ That is the distinctive mark of his authentic followers. That's why it doesn't matter what we have, but we're in Christ. Does that make sense? So we can be naked, stripped of everything. Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most, next to the Bible, one of the best sellers in all the world, is is, is a guy who wrote this by memory of the Bible in prison. He would sharpen pencils for his wife while she could go and sell them. And he wrote Pilgrim's Progress in his mind while in prison over 11 years. Now that tells you something. You're in Christ. You can have everything stripped off you, but you're in Christ. In uh, Galatians uh, chapter 3, 26 to 28, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ. See, Paul is speaking about them 
reminding them of their new identity. So they're in Christ. We are blessed by our blessed Father. That's our interdependent identity. We are in Christ. Here's a third one. We are chosen. We are chosen. Even as you were chosen in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world. You were chosen in Him. Before the foundation of the world. We were on God's mind way before uh, He was on... Uh, we, sorry, he, God, sorry, we were on God's mind way before He was on our mind. And He chose us. What does that mean? The word choice in the Greek simply means this. To speak to a conclusion. Stop and think of that for a second. To speak to a conclusion. He knew when you and I would be born and when you and I are going to die. And he spoke that to a conclusion. So in between the 9th of September, 1966, and the day that I die, that dash makes a difference. It's in that dash that he chose me to come to him on the 4th of March, 1982. And then from that moment on, to receive the gift and he chose me to live for him. And I have messed up royally. That's how I know we have free choice, by the way. <laughs> because I've messed up. But he has been faithful in that choosing. And he drew me. And I tell you, as a husband and a father, that's huge. Because we represent God as he works in us as husbands and dads and through us. And we fail. So that it's in that choosing we can say, Lord, thank you. And... It's, he chooses us way before we did anything good or bad. That's key. Well, somebody has says, well, Craig, if, if that is key, uh, election to be chosen, I think I'm going to lose my mind. Yeah, but if we don't believe in it, you're going to lose your soul. <laughs> you need to know that it, that's a fact. Whether we like it or not, and in a culture where we need to be in control of everything, he chose you. And he wants to draw you to himself. Is that a weird thought in the Bible? No. In the book of Deuteronomy 7, it says this, verse 6 and 8, The Lord your God has chosen you, this is what he said to Israel, to be a treasured possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. It is not because you are more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of people, but it is because of the Lord's love for us and is keeping the oath that he swore to our fathers that the Lord God brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of the Pharaoh king of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 9, 4 and 5, it says this, Also, God did not choose them because of their righteousness. So do not say in your heart, after the Lord God has, uh, has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord God has brought me to possess this land. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess the land. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He said, well, that's just an Old Testament concept. No, no, no. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. For consider your calling, my brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose that it, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
So if you were brought up in a home where you're told you're thick, stupid, useless, you'll never amount to anything, or you got a B, where's the A? Or you got an A, where's the A plus? So if you were brought in a home that you were run down or you had to perform, God says, you've all got an even playing field. I chose you because I wanted to use you. I loved you. And I want to use your life exactly as you are. So stop being someone else. Is that true? Let's be honest. Most of, us, most of us here have tried to be someone else at some time. Well, that's not true. Back in the days, in the 80s and the 70s, we used to have pictures on our wall of somebody, you know, the famous rocker or something. And, yeah, I want to be like you. You know, it, we all want to be like someone. And God said, no, don't. You don't have to be. Be me, and I will use you as you are, because I chose you. I am chosen. Think of it. You're chosen. I don't feel chosen. Well, wait. Let's keep moving on. So, blessed by our blessed Father, we're in Christ. We are chosen. Number four, we're holy. God not only chose us, but he wanted us to be holy. And the word holiness, interesting, simply means to be unique and distinct, to be different, that you're not the same. That's what God wanted, us to be distinct and different. When you were studying the book of Leviticus, you see that's all about holiness. And so holiness is in two things in the Bible. There's two types of holiness, positional holiness and progressive holiness. So positional holiness is that we are holy because of what Christ did for us. We needed someone who was without sin, without, who never sinned, to die on a cross, to shed his blood, be buried and rose again, and he was holy. He was a perfect sacrifice for God. In the, in the Old Testament, they would bring bulls and rams, etc., but he was a perfect sacrifice who was distinct and different and holy. But then there is progressive holiness. So the day on the 4th of March, 1982, when I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, there was then, so I was made holy, so if I died in a car accident the next day, I would have gone to heaven. But progressive holiness, as I'm living for the Lord, then I'm to be, act differently than how the world acts. I'm to think differently. Well, how do, how do we do that? Sanctify them by their truth. Your word is truth, Jesus said. That's how we're made holy. The word holy as it's set apart. That's another word for it. So we're to read God's word, listen to God's word. We're to pray together, be part of life together on a Thursday night at 6 o'clock. That's how we're made holy. And it's interesting. You become who you hang around. True or false? And so you, you hang your life together. Why? Because no one matures in isolation. So we're holy. But we're not just holy. Number five, we're blameless. We were designed to be blameless in Him before the foundation. You were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. So blameless is what? Is blameless sinless? No. In Leviticus it says, it is accepted for you that if you brought a male without, uh, without blemish or a bull or a sheep or a goat, you are not to offer anything that has blemish for it is not acceptable. The idea of blameless in the Old Testament was that the person must come with something, so a firstborn lamb, a firstborn ox, or a pigeon. The point was the person would come with, and the idea of firstborn is innocent, and they would put that lamb on the altar and put their hand on it, and with the priest, they would cut the neck of that lamb and the blood would be spilt out, but it would be a reminder that that animal is the substitute for that person. Today we go, oh, that's gross. Well, back then, that's not true. Back then, it was a vivid me metaphor and a picture that someone innocent was dying for you. 
We do this all the time, by the way. When we hear somebody in, in, in the army, a soldier who falls on a grenade, what do we do? Right? Because that's, that's substituted. He sacrificed his life for someone else. Well, how much more did Jesus do that? Sacrifice his life for you and for me. And he did it without blemish. Uh, in Hebrews 9, it says this, For if the bulls of the blood, sorry, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a, of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your consciences from dead works to serve the living God? In Colossians 1.22, it says this, now Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to do what? To present you holy and blameless above reproach from him. Free from sin, free from shame, free from guilt. You're free. And that's why people who want to present themselves, and again, that's fine if you're going to go on Instagram. But if you're presenting yourself on Instagram so you show a better improved you, so you get the likes, guess what? At some point, someone's going to do this. That's how it goes. And then if somebody does this and you get offended, oh my word, then you did it for image management. The best thing is to live a holy life before him. And here's the fact. So for instance, if somebody says to me, Craig, you're not a really good speaker. I'll go, I know, right? Absolutely. It's amazing that God uses me. That's the point. None of us are adequate in and of ourselves. Oh, Craig, you've got this wrong with you. Oh, you said patience, and I saw you getting upset with Ellie. Yeah, I know I did. And that's why I've got to seek the Lord. And you're right, I was wrong. See, and that's what the community of Christ should be, where all of you can be absolutely honest with one another and say, here's where I'm failing. And instead of going, kids, we're not going to be fellowshipping with them anymore, you'll go, hey, can we pray with you? Can we sit with you? Do you realize that the church can be actually one of the most unsafe places for people? Do you know that? We're actually historically known to be the only ones who shoot our wounded. It's terrible. I know. My wife and I have lived that throughout the 40 years I've been a Christian and a pastor. We've been in churches where we were literally, if we had a problem, you can't share it, man. You need to be a place that looks at one another and you can say, I'm really struggling with pornography. I, really, I can't forgive my parents because of the abuse they did to me. I loathe them. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm, I've got, I'm on oxycontins in secret. And I, I keep getting, I've got a backhand deal going, but I know I need to stop it. I've lost my spouse, and I don't know what to do. I'm losing it. And you lot should be a church that come around one another. And the first thing, by the way, you should be saying to one another, I don't know what to do about that, but I know he does. And so let's join hands. Let's, let's go down and, and, and bow our knees and, and seek the Lord. When we were in Africa recently, there was a number of deaths going on amongst kids and stuff. And I just grabbed the hands of Pastor Andile and I said, let's just pray. I have no answer to this. And so you're on your knees. You're in the middle of nowhere. People dying and coughing on you. And you're going, Lord, if you take my life, you take my life. But this is important. That's what you should be like as a body. Are you that way? 
Are you, do you really want to come along? Uh, can you be vulnerable? Or do you stay isolated in your home, never allowing yourself to be vulnerable? And of course people are going to fail you. Oh my word. Of course you're going to offend one another. You're human. You're all a pain in the butt. That's the point. But here's what's important. You get on your knees, though, and you seek the Lord together. That's blemish. That's without blemish, because you have a Savior how many of you would be willing to do that? Don't put up your hands. That you'd be honest with one another. That on Thursday night, you would just literally come here and say, let us hold hand and seek the Lord. At the ladies' Bible study, if you can, you go there. You bow your knee at, at, your, at the, at the um, Redeemer City office. Because if you do that before the Lord together, you will become a united group. And elders will come amongst you. Godly women will come amongst you. Because you're without spot spot or blemish. You're already pure. I don't care what you've done. You're already pure. It's washed away, man. Okay, if I have to let people know what I'm doing, tell them. I had a guy come see me. He did some despicable things. I said, you need to go to the police right now and tell them what you did. He did that. He repented right there, went to the police. He went to jail. He never had a lawyer. It was the shortest case of abuse and he's still in jail. But he said, Craig, the fact that I had to come clean and I struggled with this for years. They didn't know what to do with him. The police took him from Aurelia out to uh, Whitby, from Whitby to Toronto to Ottawa because no one had ever just admitted what they did wrong. That's what I'm talking about. It's, truth is a straight line. And why can you do this? Number six, because we are secure. We are secure. Look at the Bible teaches us. We are secure. He predestined us for adoption. That's why this works. You are adopted. In other words, the word adopted simply means to be placed as a son. In Romans 8, it says this, verse 29, For, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the first among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called those that he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. To be adopted is to be placed as a son. In ancient times, uh, you actually didn't adopt, like we adopted little Ellie, um, but in, back then, you didn't adopt a younger person. You actually adopted somebody in their 20s, and the person would take that person by them and then train them up and say, when I die, you're going to take over my estate. The most famous, actually, is Augustus, um, who was adopted by Julius Caesar. He was a nephew of an heir. He became a son, and he became a king. And that's what it is, to be placed as a son. Adam was God's, Adam was God's first son. He said, I'm going to design you, and I want you to follow me. But he failed. We see that um, Israel became God's son. I'm going to use you to tell the world about me. They failed. So in Galatians, this is Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verse 4 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. So at just the right time, God sent forth, sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son... You are an heir. How cool is that? You are not just a son, but an heir. And you were placed as a son and daughter. 
So it doesn't matter what family background you have. It could have been horrific, abusive, painful, but you've been placed as a son and as a daughter, and you can be different and live different. And what does that mean, to be adopted and placed as a son? Look at verse 7 of Ephesians 1, verse 7 to 12. Look at what it means to be in that eternal relationship with a new father to be adopted. In Jesus, we have redemption. You have been bought at a price through his blood. You have been forgiveness, the forgiveness of your trespasses, according, not from, but according to the riches of his grace. He lavished upon us with all wisdom and insights. You have wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will, according to God's purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. And in Him we have obtained what? An inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Him might be the praise of His glory." Do you hear that? You're adopted. You're redeemed. You have a future now. You literally can have your best life now in Him, not in terms of material possessions, but in terms of identity, interdependent identity. But the question is, how do I get that? Well, in verses 13 and 14, there are three ways in which we can receive there's three ways in which we can receive this blessed identity, this interdependent identity. Number one, we have to hear. How do we receive it? We heard. We heard. Look what it says. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So that's the first one. You've got to be willing to hear. You've got to be willing to have an open heart to hear. The Bible says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In Romans uh, ten seventeen, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So how do we know that we're chosen? How do we know that we're redeemed? Well, we listened. We genuinely listened. In John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Think of that. That, that, how do, you, how do you know if you truly want to be changed today? Right here and right now you're going, I have never accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I, I believe that when he died on the cross and shed his blood, how much did he love me? He loved me this much that he sent his son to die for me. And that I need to receive him. How do I do that? I simply call on him. I've heard that he died on the cross. He shed his blood. He was spotless and he chose me. But I have to do something about it. So... Here I am, here God is. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so he calls me this morning. And I've got to hear that. It says in Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And they said to the apostles, what shall we do? What must we do to be saved? So we have to hear. But hearing is one thing. Number two, we have to believe. So, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, verse 13, and believed in him. So, when you hear the word, you believe. And, it says, and then in Romans, it says, uh, 1 verse 16, that when we believe, it is the power, the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who will believe. So, to believe means to put your, uh, your faith in Jesus Christ. 
To be in Christ, it's kind of like what Acts, uh, Acts uh, 16.31 says, what must we do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's not about the messenger. I've come to bring a message. And the message is that you need to come to Christ. Your identity needs to be in Him. We Well, Craig, what about you? Well, on the 4th of March, 1982, I placed my faith and identity in Jesus Christ. So I don't have to do that. I need to keep walking in Christ. But you might be here today and you've never come to know Christ. And that is something you need to give your heart and your mind to Him. And so we have to have a receptive heart that listens and a mind that believes and receives. And thirdly, so not only do we hear, not only do we believe, but number three, we are sealed. And this is key. We are sealed. Look at it says in verse 14. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of your glory. On the 10th of uh, November, we heard that Renee's dad was really sick. We had to leave really quickly, and we left on the 19th. We got there on the 22nd um, at uh, 10, 10, 10.30 uh, at the house. And, and we were with Dad. Dad acknowledged Renee, thanks be to God. He had gone into almost a semi-coma, uh, but he, had re- he was really, really sick. Um, and then I remember holding him and singing the road right across to him. And, and his Bible was there. And I always remember one of the things that he always believed in, he believed that he was sealed with the Holy Spirit. In other words, that when he accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior, six years after we were married, we were giving the gospel, giving the gospel, giving the gospel. Then we got a phone call. So six years into our marriage, that dad accepted Christ with mom. And then you find him there at, on that day, on the 22nd, he was going to go to glory. And to have him there, you know, he's there in our arms, seeing him there, but knowing this verse gave us incredible confidence that dad was sealed. That though his worthy body was worn away and he was about to die, but, but he was sealed in three ways. Sealing is a finished transaction. In ancient times, a seal marked, it literally was a signet ring in wax, and you put it on a document, and it was a final, it was a legal document, like a, lawyer, a lawyer's document. It sealed it. It was a final transaction. In 1 Corinthians 16, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, with whom you, uh, uh, with whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body, because your body is now sealed. Your soul is sealed. It's, and, it, and when you die, it's an absolute final transaction that takes place now with a guarantee to the future. Second, a seal was a mark guarantee of what? Of ownership. It was ownership. You are his. <laughs> I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are his. You are owned by him. That was the other aspect of being sealed. And number three... It's a mark of authenticity and distinctiveness. Christ, he is none of his, Romans 8, 9. It's not just a lip uh, 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 profession, it's a life possession. That you are his and he is yours. And this morning, I want to really encourage you. Close your eyes. No one looking around, close your eyes. I'm not going to ask for a profession of faith this morning. But I'm going to say this to you. Perhaps you are searching spiritually and you're saying, Craig, I need an identity that doesn't simply focus on my wife or my husband or what I have. I realize that I need Christ as my Savior. If you're here today and you at least want to talk about that, 
to think that through. I just want you to put up your hand. No one's looking around. Everybody's eyes are closed. Just put up your hand real quick, put it down. And I'll know how to pray for you. I'm not going to pray for you by name here. But then maybe we can meet. And if you're here, don't put it off. Perhaps you need Christ. You have never accepted Christ. And you need a different identity. Just slip, slip up your hand, put it up, put it down. And I'll know how to pray for you. Perhaps you're here and you've lost your identity. In other words, your identity is being focused on what you have. You actually are afraid to lose everything. You're afraid and you need prayer. And you say, it's time that I not only live for myself, I've got to live for others. And not only that, I need to start praying for and coming around the body of Christ at Redeemer City Church. If that's you, put up your hand real quick. Put it down. I see one. Thank you. Two. At least there's two of you. All of us should be putting up our hands, right? All of us need that. I need that prayer. And so seek the Lord together. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you because we are in need of your help and your grace. And Lord, when we come to the, uh, the Lord's table this morning, we're reminded that we're yours. We have an interdependent identity on you. Lord, we need you. We've lived for ourselves, And I'll be honest, Lord, we are afraid of losing everything. We're not ready to give up everything. Father, we have been critical and cynical. We are pessimistic. And Lord, we want to repent of that. We thank you that we are yours, that we're chosen, we're in Christ, we're holy, we're blameless, we're secure, and that you own us, Father. And so we give you ourselves anew. Lord, would you humble us, break us, and that we would live for you who died for us. And Father, as we come to the Lord's table, we ask that we will live differently and speak differently. And that, Lord, this would be a reminder of what you've done for us. And all God's people said, in Jesus' name, amen. amen.